Today, we are going to talk about employee retention strategies. The talent shift is real and companies that focus on executing the right employee retention strategies will be rewarded, but it will require thinking differently. To provide you a fresh perspective, we've called in Paris Parker, Chief HR Officer at Paycor. Welcome to the Voices of HR podcast presented by HR Morning. I'm your host, Berta Aldrich, outperformance coach and author of Winning the Talent Shift. Each week, I have candid conversations with HR practitioners, thought leaders, and C-suite executives to tease out what works and what doesn't in human resources, people strategy, corporate culture, and more. Horace Parker is a certified change management professional with expertise in talent management, talent development, employee engagement, coaching, and leadership development. Before joining the HR technology company Paycor, she was head of HR for the technology and digital division for Kroger, and before that, director of engagement strategy and analytics at Macy's. Paris, welcome to Voices of HR. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be with you today. Well, we are so excited to have this conversation because you have such unique perspectives on so many different topics. So we're going to try to give our, our HR audience as many of these insights as possible, but we're going to really couch it under this employee retention strategy. Because as you and I had talked about before, the talent shift that is occurring in our workplaces in some ways is unprecedented. And your perspectives are unique on this, what I would consider this watershed moment. And companies are going to have to think act and execute differently than they did before to have this, you know, productive, engaged workforce. So let's start with one of the first things that you said to me that I thought was unique and different was you said one of the worst things that HR can do is focus on turnover, which historically has been a tall tale, tall tale sign of danger, right? Why don't you and your team focus on that? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Back in my Kroger days, I had the chance to learn a lot about what it meant to be um, a product-centric organization. And when you're transitioning a company to think in more a product-driven or an outcome-based way, it's really about outcomes and less about the tasks that you focus in on. So for me, it was a it was a shift in how I thought about people because when you focus on turnover, it's easy to focus on the people that are leaving and dissecting all the reasons that they're leaving and where they're leaving from. And it really takes your energy away from understanding why people stay and putting mm -hmm. that focus more on retention. And so what are the reasons people want to stay? What are unique things happening in different parts of the world or different parts of the country or different parts of where your associates sit? And doubling down on the behaviors, the types of recognition, the variety of different levers that actually are within your circle of control to ensure that the people that you want to stay, stay. What I want to make clear is that doesn't mean that the people that are leaving aren't important. You certainly want to understand that perspective too, just in a little bit more of a balanced way and then drive your areas of focus, drive your milestones, drive your outcomes on what's going to get 
um, the right employees to stay in the right types of roles versus getting too bogged down in the plethora, the plethora of reasons that people leave. That is unique because so often today we are focusing on turnover. And so I think, let me play this back. So when, when it comes to retention, the conversation should be about ways to hold on to the right people for the right parts of your business. Because when you focus on retention, I guess, do you look for someone who is high performing today or has the talent and with upskilling, maybe in training can be a high performer in the future? Or do you look for something completely different? Like, who do you focus on? Yeah, you know, you're hitting on something that I love talking about because, and I don't want to overuse the phrase, but, you know, retaining talent and how you think about it isn't really a one size fits all approach. So for me, when I think about folks that are individual contributors in the business or early to mid in their careers, there's really two types of things that I focus in on you're going to have some cream that rises to the top, right? So people that are just hungry for more. And what the more means is not just people that are hungry for promotion, but they're actually hungry to put the muscle in to get um, better as the organization gets bigger. So that means that they're willing to learn new things, try something different. They're probably a little bit more willing to also fail while they're trying something new. That's really one way to think about potential, right? Somebody who has potential to grow within your organization, to try a new task, to learn a new area that could be mutually beneficial. Mm -hmm. There are also people that are just really good at what they do. And we need those people too. Mm -hmm. If everybody's always trying to change seats or do something different, that can actually be really disruptive to a business. And so you need really solid A and B players that love the roles that they're in, want to make those roles and what those roles produce better, but are also really, really happy in their seat. Um, So that's one way to look at it. I tell my peers all the time, you know, when you're at the C-suite and you're looking at your next line of leaders, you need a lot of area experts. So those are people that maybe don't have any interest in being in the C-suite or they know, you know, I always want to be a talent acquisition um, professional or I want to be an HR business partner or I want to be a GM. That's okay. That can be a great place for them to land for the foreseeable future. And you need those area experts to drive your business forward. You need them to keep your foundation more than small so that you can try and innovate um, in different parts of the business or have a lot of stability to run on. And so potential isn't this one, you're either up or out. I think that's the wrong way to think about it. But when you really talk, say, retain the right people for the right roles. Sometimes the right person is the person that can do exactly what you need them to do, mm-hmm. exactly how they're supposed to do it. And they're really happy doing it for years to come. So we have a lot of discussions today. So what, let me pair this back a little bit. So you are really talking about HR sitting in this critical seat of really getting strategic about 
what retention looks like for your organization. And it's okay to retain people who want to just get better in their seat or maybe take laterals across the organization, but also paying particular attention to your next-gen leaders and also those high performers. So if you can for us, how do you define a high performer? Someone that you want to maybe outreach and invest in a little bit more proactively because there's so many women particularly that I coach into the executive levels and there's always this element of doubt do, do I fit in should I these women are incredible performers they don't know it nobody's ever told them so what do you look for yeah you know i always am really clear about making sure that we know when we're talking about performance and then when we're talking about mm -hmm. potential performance is fairly, and it can be fairly objective. So a role has a certain set of expectations that come with it. I think a leader's responsibility is ensuring that individuals know what those expectations are. And they're having really good conversations around what good looks like, what great looks like, and mm -hmm. what killing it looks like, right? Um, because I think one of the things that we struggle with as human beings is we overstate data. So somebody does a good job and we're like, oh my gosh, Berta, you killed it. That was fabulous. When in real life, it was good and we loved yeah. that it was good, but we've now just set that expectation that that good behavior was actually phenomenal. And it wasn't. Um, and so I think number one, we have to revalue good and we have to feel really proud when somebody does something in the exact way that we would expect them to. And we have to be really clear when we share that feedback with them so that when they do do something great, um, we match not only with our words, but maybe some of the things that are going to come next for that person because they're constantly doing great work or they're constantly over delivering. Um, so I think one being really clear when you're talking about performance versus how you might manage potential. Um, I think your confidence question or not, it wasn't actually even a question, your statement, right? Around how people might feel. I think sometimes that's not a fake feeling. We're doing it to people by saying they're great when we really mean they're good. Because then they're expecting great expectations or great outcomes to come from that. And what they're feeling is maybe really good value versus really great value. And we have a lot of work to do to be more mindful and more intentional about using the words that we use. And I think all leaders can do a better job of ensuring expectations are really clear. When it comes to potential it a little bit goes back to that grit of what does that individual bring to the table that's a little bit different? Are they showing that they're willing to learn something new, try something new? Um, and candidly, sometimes I feel the emotion is, are they willing to be uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. When you're used to being a good or great performer, generally speaking, you're used to doing things really well and getting really productive and positive feedback. Sometimes doing something brand spanking new is totally uncomfortable. You don't know what you're doing. 
You don't know what good looks like yet. And so that person individually has to be strong enough to receive all types of feedback, feedback when they're doing really well, but also feedback to help them course correct and get better. And I think that's where I really see the differentiation in somebody's potential and are they willing to trust and are they really willing to try something new where they might not be the best at it going out of the gate? I think we as companies and as, as leaders have a lot within our circle of control of making sure we're helping people see those little milestones along the way so that we can make the scary a little unscary. Um, I also think it's good to leave the mystery in there because it helps you see how people will rise to an occasion. Um, and I have a boss who is a habitual pusher. And the reason that I love that is because every, almost every day I find myself accomplishing just a little bit more mm -hmm. than I thought I could because mm -hmm. he thought I could. And I might never get to, you know, the star level that he's looking for, but I'm certainly going to get a little further than maybe I had dreamed up on my own. I love what you just said to kind of pull it together. It's like, don't overemphasize good performance as great, but also what works with, with actually high performers is exactly what you just said, which is push them to continue to get better because that's what charges them up. That's what gets them to come into work every day. It's not the false, um, you know, pats on the back of you did a great job when you only did good. So that's, right. that's the key takeaway to what, to what you just said. Yeah. And Berta, you know, the way that you said that made me think of one more thing, if it's okay oh, for me to share, you know, kind of to tie it to what we've been talking about around retention. Oftentimes really good people leave and we're surprised because we're like, we've been telling them they're great, but maybe we've been rewarding them as they're good because they're, right. they're good. And so now we've created this confusion of, oh my gosh, you say that I'm great, but you treat me well, right? You treat right. me as I would expect a good player to be treated. And so in their minds, they think, well, maybe somebody will treat me great for being yeah. great versus right. if we could be really authentic and mm -hmm. treating you well for being good and being really mindful and thoughtful about mm -hmm. what that recognition looks like. And I want to be clear about recognition, you know, knowing how your people like to be recognized. Is it a note? Is mm -hmm. it a shout out during a meeting? Is it an invite out to lunch? Is it a really thoughtful email about yeah. what went well and why it went well? Those things drive value and it really helps for people to see and understand where they sit um, so that they can stay comfortable in that spot or they can reach for more. Absolutely. So how should listeners go about having honest conversations with individuals about opportunities at their company, especially if there's minimal chance for them to get promoted? So you have a different perspective on that too. Yeah. You know, one is we have to remember that just like we're human beings, the people that we're lucky enough to get to do work with for the most part still are also human beings, right? And you can't, you can't solve everything in one conversation. 
And mm-hmm. I really think it starts with the everyday smaller moments about talking about real things. You have the opportunity to build or break trust every single day when you're having mm-hmm. conversations with folks. I think as organizations being declarative around when certain conversations need to happen, that at least gets the ball rolling. So for example, in my organization, we have quarterly connects and our commitment is a hundred percent of employees have a quarterly connect conversation. Mm. Does that mean I only want you talking to your folks once a quarter? Absolutely. Not. Right. <laughs> it's right. actually the opposite. That quarterly conversation <laughs> is just like a recap, right. Of the things mm-hmm. that you've been talking about the days and the weeks leading up to it. But it does draw a line in the sand of every quarter. These are the types of things we want you discussing. I think that kind of cadence creates the space for people leaders and for individuals, individuals to prepare and start getting comfortable around having those conversations that can be really meaningful and really, really important. Um, And declaring that time. So to be able to say, you know, when we have our next quarterly, I'd love to talk about some career development opportunities. Mm -hmm. And here are ways that I'm thinking about my development people leader. How are you thinking about it? Right. So coming to the table with your own thoughts and ideas, not just I've done really great work. What's next? Right. The Mm -hmm. next part of my story for me. Um, But I think having those declarations in time helps to start the ball to get moving. Mm Um, And then individuals, both people leaders and individuals have to do their part in having those meaningful discussions and being really, really open. I think sometimes some of the best discussions are when somebody says, you know, I want to be title X, Y, and Z. Usually Mm -hmm. my first question back is tell me more about that. Like what Mm -hmm. about that job excites you? What about that role is going to give you something better, different than Mm -hmm. what you're getting today? Um, And so take it about more than just a job or a title and use that opportunity to find out what excites somebody, what's missing in their role today. Mm -hmm. Do they feel rewarded and recognized? What better can we do to create experiences for them that are really, really meaningful? Because sometimes it's not the next level and it's not the next title. Sometimes it's actually things we can do in your role for you in the moment in the moment that we're in. So I think those candid conversations are really important. I, Berta, I hate it when people say, oh, I'm preparing to have a tough conversation. The toughest conversation is the one that you didn't have, right? Mm -hmm. So if you really care about somebody and you care about how they're progressing and you care about how they're doing, it's not a tough conversation. It's the conversation you owe them. And so I think reframing that in our own minds of this isn't a hard conversation. This is the conversation I owe this person because I respect them and I value them. You can have really great dialogue all throughout the year versus just here and there when somebody tells you, you have to have it. I love that because your, your conversations that you're encouraging are helping people to move forward, right? To help set a direction, to invest in them, to develop them. And I think you know, if you go back and you talk to employees, caring and development, particularly for Gen Z, I think are two of the biggest drivers of employee engagement and satisfaction. And so for our HR pros out there, um, invest and have those tough conversations, 
but help them move forward. So let me switch this around to you. So what type of, of characteristics would an employee have today that would make you stop and go, we need to invest in that person. We need to retain that person. What do they look like? Just top two or three characteristics, maybe for a leadership role. Let's take that angle because I think we've talked a lot about the general population, sure. but leadership, what does future leadership look like to you? Yeah. You know, one is just pure play curiosity, curiosity mm-hmm. of work and outcomes that just aren't yours. The other is the ability to work across multiple types of people, mm-hmm. multiple types of functions. It's really easy to get things done as a leader when you command and control it. The bigger things that we're all going to accomplish are things that we accomplish in partnership with other people in seats just like ours. Um, you know, while I think social media and the enhancements that we've seen in digital environments are amazing. Mm-hmm. I think we've really suffered as human beings and just remembering what it means to connect and build relationships mm-hmm. outside of like text messaging and instant messaging and mm-hmm. emails. I think that relational power is going to be such a differentiator. People that can get things done in partnership um, versus throwing somebody under the bus or taking right. control over something is going to be um, is going to continue to be key. Mm-hmm. I also think um, always having the company's best outputs at heart. So mm-hmm. not just what is going to make your function look great, but what is going to ensure that the company stays around for a long time. Mm-hmm. So the stories are no longer um, and no longer should they be about Berta and about Paris, but it's about Paycor or it's about mm-hmm. name your company, right? Like what are the humans at that company collectively mm-hmm. doing to make that company better versus what is one individual doing? One individual is never going to carry the weight of an entire organization. And I think people who see that um, early on, whether it's early on in their careers or like we're talking about the most senior leaders that can more quickly understand that it's not about them, And it's about what the whole can do and how the whole can move the company is really, really important. It's about that bigger purpose. That's right. Mm -hmm. So talking about bigger purpose, we had some good prior conversations around the topic of DE&I. And you had a surprising reaction when I started asking DE&I questions. You kind of bristled a little bit. So I want our audience to understand your unique perspective on DE&I. So when someone says DE&I, what do you think of? I mean, you know, Berta, the first thing I think of is I want that person to say the words, right? It's more than DE&I. It's about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And those words can't be summarized in an abbreviated um, fashion. And I think when we say DE&I, or now I hear people say DE&I and B, and and I'm sure in a couple of years, there'll be another letter. The letters just get so diluted um, that I think we, we forget to stop and actually think about what does it mean to be a diverse company? 
What does it mean to be inclusive in every interaction? What does it mean to drive equity? And why is that important? How do people feel like they either belong or they don't? And when we just say DE&I or DE&I and B, we're just glassing we're just glassing over the real stuff. So first and foremost, and I love an acronym to be clear, like I'll acronym and abbreviate and nickname somebody in a hot minute. Um, so it's, it's not about that, but it's more when we're specifically talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, taking a moment and creating space for those words also helps leaders consciously think about, am I showing up in an inclusive manner. What are ways that I can drive equity within my organization? This work doesn't live in the function, right? If it does, it's going to disappear um, just as just as fast as it shows up. This work is the work of all humans. We all have to understand the role that we play because we all play a role in making the wor- world diverse. To me, Berta, you're diverse. To you, I'm probably diverse, right? Um, so we both bring a perspective that's different from our own. How we treat each other, how we choose to be inclusive of each other's perspectives, that's on you and that's on me. It's not on the HR function or the person that heads up diversity, equity, and inclusion in your business. It's on each of us. And the more that we um, share education, we create ways, we declare that our workplaces are safe workplaces. And this is what it means to be a safe workplace. Mm-hmm. And we declare, you know, this isn't the goals of one function. And this is how we expect our leaders to show mm-hmm. up. And now leaders, these are the types of milestones and outcomes we want you to drive in your businesses. That's what makes it the smell of the place. That's what makes mm-hmm. us an inclusive organization, not because your head of diversity, equity, and inclusion said so, but it's who we are. Um, My other ticking point is I really get itchy. I'm moving around in my seat right now. When people say things like diversity and equity and inclusion initiatives, an initiative has a start and a finish. Diversity, equity, and inclusion work, human-centric work, doesn't have a start and a finish. My expectation is, you know, we get to a milestone and then we figure out how do we do that better? How are we more welcoming for the next person? How are we more equitable in how we talk about this topic the next time? And so there's there's not a start and a finish to it, which I think is what's so exciting about people-centric work is that humans are going to continue to evolve. And because of that, we need to continue to evolve and grow and get better. So how, what have you found works? Because what you're really talking about is holding everyone in the organization, and I would suspect probably a lot of your leaders are held very accountable, to create this culture in this environment where all of these letters and these definitions actually thrive. Because if companies do it well, and if they live the values that are in those three letters, they're going to see more positive outcomes. They're going to see better cultures, higher engagement, potentially better profits. So as an expert, how would you, or, and how have you executed that within your organization to hold people accountable and to actually encourage this type of behavior? Yeah. You know, one of my favorite things to rely on is um, helping people 
and it's not helping. I'm not really helping people. You're showing people another Mm -hmm. way to think about a topic, right? One Mm -hmm. of my favorite ways to highlight the criticality of diversity has nothing to do with race, gender, age, ethnicity. I love talking about diverse thinking styles. Mm. It takes, Berta, the emotion out of everything. Um, there's a tool I, I really like to use. And the reason that I like it is it just, it's scientifically based, number one. Mm. And it just helps people uncover the different ways people think and why we think that way. And and the we that it starts off with is you. It's really a look at yourself. So how do I process information? And then how do I communicate that information? Mm. And the reason that I love starting with that foundation is you're, um, you're creating a space where people can think about diversity in a way that's very different than how we, how we talk about it in the mainstream. So number one, you're thinking about it differently. Number two, the magic that's unlocked when you realize the the incremental way that you can drive value through being inclusive of diverse thinking styles. Once you can really ground yourself in that, it's really natural to start thinking about, gosh, this probably applies to other layers of diversity. So if I'm a middle-aged woman of color, what value I could bring, um, you know, what value could be added to my life if I were able to take in a perspective of a older generation white male Mm -hmm. or a younger generation white female, or if I am a heterosexual, gosh, how much richer my world could be if Mm -hmm. I could understand the perspective of maybe somebody from the LGBTQ plus community Mm -hmm. that just is a lens that isn't my own story, but Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that that story wouldn't add value or perspective into how I live my life. And so I think finding your own way, for me, I love thinking styles. I think it's such a great unlock to showing people different ways to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Berta, for you, it could be something else. It could be mm-hmm. something else that you're really passionate about that bridges that gap between how we often are talked to about it versus mm-hmm. how we might learn from it for ourselves in a different way. And then we can use those same foundational behaviors to reapply what it means to be inclusive of diverse thoughts or diverse personalities in knowing that it drives so much greater value and it drives so many greater results. You just got to the heart of what all of this is about, right? The power is in diverse thinking and diverse experiences. And if we all respect those and try to learn from them and try to grow, that's how you create this culture. I think that's what you're saying. You've got it. Love it. Love it. So employers just in general spend a lot of time trying to attract what they perceive as diverse employees. But what we're seeing in the data is there's a lot of turnover with, particularly with Gen Z, um, a lot of times with diverse um, employees who come into the organization because things are very different than what they expected. Do you have any thoughts on 
how employers could create more consistency or, again, create um, better on-ramps for these individuals so that you retain them. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I, uh, and I'm actually not going to say this because I'm going to be forever young. I've already <laughs> declared that. But when I first joined the workforce, before you actually started at a company, you did some sort of job shadow. Um, for me, it was, you know, really when you were interviewing, they would have you sit next to somebody, pick up the phone, do a task, and they watched, right? How mm. how you engaged, what you did, how you handled uncomfortable solution or situations. The other thing that it really created was a chance for that person to actually see what a day in the life could look like, right? Mm -hmm. For them. So everybody had a clear picture of what they were signing up for. Um, we talk about this on my team all the time, which is time to hire. How quickly can a recruiter find the right type of candidate? And how can we be really respectful of that candidate's time as they're going through an application process? I think as we continue, um, particularly in worlds that are a little bit more virtual and hybrid, is we have to continue to find ways to show candidates a realistic view of what that job looks like. Um, mm -hmm. I, as you can tell, have a very human-centric kind of approach to everything. And I think, gosh, it's terrifying to quit a job. Yeah. And it's really hard to start a new job. We should all feel personally responsible to ensure people know what they're signing up for before mm -hmm. they leave something mm -hmm else. It's people's lives, right? Mm -hmm. It's not easy just to quit a job and find a new one. Um, it can cause a lot of disruption for people's home lives and their families and their livelihoods. So the more authentic and real we can be on the goods that come with our organization, mm -hmm. but also it's called work. It's not play. So when, <laughs> you know, when people are like, gosh, today was really hard. Sometimes I'm like, gosh, I hope so. <laughs> you know, like I don't want it to be hard all the time, but it right. shouldn't feel like we're just on a merry-go-round all day long yeah. either. And I think we have to, we have to say that and we have to talk about that. One of the things that I love talking about at work, you know, we're an HR technology company and mm -hmm. I always say all the time, I don't care if a tool is created for a business of five people or 5,000 people. I want us to be obsessed with it. And I want part of the value mm -hmm. proposition of working at Paycor to be not only are we focused in on our own talent, but every single person that works here gets to be a part of what we create next, gets to give feedback on what's working well and what isn't. Because back to that topic of the greater good, we're making things better, not just for us, but for our customers and our shareholders. But with that comes a lot of ugly. It's not going to be perfect for you, Berta, the same way that it's perfect for me. And I think being able to own and say, hey, we're going to try really hard. And sometimes the days are going to be terrible. And sometimes the days are going to be more than terrible, but you're always going to have a team of people around you, or we're always going to work together to get to the right outcomes or doing the right thing and taking care of our customers and competing to win is what we're all about. And some days it's rose colored glasses and some days it's really ugly. <laughs> 
<laughs> but we all work at it together. There's a little less confusion, um, you know, when things maybe aren't going exactly the way that you thought they would, because part of your you thought they would was it's not going to be perfect every day. Absolutely. All right. So before I let you go and we get into hopefully rapid fire questions for you, I have one more question sure. on resource groups. So you have a different perspective and you even view yourself a little differently. You're a, a working mom and have a very unique and difficult job, right? As so many other moms do. Um, so tell us about your perspective on employee resource groups and the title that you give yourself as a working mom. Yeah, the title that I give myself as a working mom is I'm a mom that works because the mom comes first for the mom comes first for me. And that doesn't mean that works um, not important. I actually think most employers would see, you know, when you're a mom that works, you're really grounded in doing your best every single day for your family. There's a there's a reason more than you know, I'm here to do work all throughout the week that drives you. Employee resource groups, I just love. And a part of loving something is also being okay when it's over. Um, a lot of companies struggle with employee resource groups and particularly leaders for employee resource groups, because these are, um, these are the folks that we talked about early on, they're the ones that are doing really good work, or they're doing really great work, or they're doing really great work, and they want to do more, right? Mm -hmm. So really important people in your organization. It's also side of desk, it is extra work that they're doing, because they're passionate about it. And sometimes employee resource groups go do go through, you know, a bit of highs and lows, mm -hmm. where they have people that can commit a lot of time and a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's going to dive down a little bit and companies have to be agile enough to ride that mm -hmm. roller coaster um, and be okay. You know, employee resource groups by definition are groups that employees pull together because they have a common interest in wanting to learn something more, share something more, mm -hmm. be grounded in something with other coworkers of theirs. And there might come in time, come a time where um, one focus area just becomes, it's never going to become less important, but maybe it's just less prioritized because of other things that are going on in the world or in the business. And we have to stop seeing that as a success and a failure of an employee resource group, but really more as an evolution of how people are thinking about their experiences and where they're able to invest their time. I've seen people start saying things like, well, we're going to carve out five hours for this. Five hours is never going to be enough, you know, or we're going to give you extra time to do this. Well, I would ask, where's the extra time coming mm -hmm. from? And mm -hmm. so embrace the ebb and flow Ensure you're not making your employee resource group um, leaders feel like failures if they're not at the at the tip of the roller coaster every time and really make it more about the journey and the ride, because there are times where certain focus areas are going to be really hot topics and a lot of people are going to be engaged. And there's going to be times where five or six people show up to the lunch and learn. And if you ask me, I think both those are great, because for those five or six people, that's going to be a really meaningful experience. Mm -hmm. And that's why employee resource groups matter. 
They do. They do. Okay. So we are nearing the end. And at the end of every podcast, we do something called rapid fire questions. So these are one sentence questions so that our audience gets to know you a little bit more with one sentence answers. Are you ready to play? I think so. All right, let's do it. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Exercise. So I got really focused on that. And the reason that it had is that it showed me the value of declaring the importance of something, creating the space to do it, and getting better every time. How did you wind up in HR and is it something that you started out pursuing or did you fall into it? No, I wanted to be a child psychologist Mm -hmm. and I got into HR because of a summer job that I started when I was in college. Hmm. Do tell a little bit more. Okay. I was trying not to break the one sentence rule. Yeah. (laughs) Break it. Break it. I started working for Victoria's Secret Limited Brands when I was a freshman in college, um, just because I I wanted to work. And what I learned in my close to six years there was the power of people and impacting a business. And Mm -hmm. so as I grew older and more mature in work, I realized that an area of the business that constantly is, is powering people and business outcomes is human resources. And, and that's how I slowly merged um, over into HR. We're so lucky that you did. What is your favorite productivity hack for HR professionals? It's going to sound like an oxymoron. And I like even numbers. So I'm going to give you two. Yes okay. means less which means yes means less I love because, and I, it's not mine. My boss always says, if you steal something from me, you're stealing twice because I took it from somebody else. Um, <laughs> so this is something that I had heard a woman talk about. And basically she was saying, you have 40 hours, you know, you have 40, um, 24 hours in a day. The more you say yes, the less your yes means. So let's break it down. Let's say we have 12 awake hours. Well, if I say yes to six people, those six people are getting two hours of my time versus if I say yes to two people, those two people are getting six hours of my time. So, you know, say yes with meaningfulness because you only have so much time and your yes can mean less. I do think for HR professionals, though, we can get a um, a wrap for just running the same playbooks mm-hmm. because it can get easy and it's safe and we can do it. I think constantly being in tune with how your business is changing, mm-hmm. therefore how you need to change to drive the outcomes that are important is really, really critical. So we can't get too comfortable in that playbook. We can't do activities for the sake of doing activities. There is a magic mashup between always pushing your organization to do more than they can handle. Because my opinion is if we over deliver for our employees, that's what it's all. That's what it's all about. I don't want to be a status quo employer. I want to be a place where people really feel like they can learn, grow and thrive. And they're the only obstacle to their own success. What are you currently reading or have read recently that you could recommend? Okay. So I made a promise to myself to stop reading business books. So I am reading a whole bunch of just fiction. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I love it <laughs> so much. <laughs> I'm actually reading right now. Um, it's an Oprah book that she recommended. The author's name is Abraham something. It's 700 pages long. Wow. Um, do you know which one I'm talking about? It's called The Covenants of Water, I believe. Okay. Yes. Um, is the name of the book. It's about multiple generations of this family. It's fascinating. You know, of a 700 page book, I'm a seventh in. <laughs> yes. And I, I'm loving it. Um, but I've done all the, all the crazy, you know, uh, what's it called? Book talk. I've done yes. the Colleen Hoover's must love books. I love the Alice network. Um, I just, I mean, I couldn't put down lessons in chemistry. Great, great, great book. If you haven't read that one. Um, so sorry, no, no fun, uh, business books for you today, but yeah, no fun business books, but a um, lot of other ones that get your brain working in a different way. There you go. You need to expand. What's one of the biggest mistakes that you've encountered throughout your career and what did you learn from it? Um, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I think that I continue to have is, um, how can I not make it a double negative? Give me one second to rephrase it. (laughs) Not paying attention to mistakes and failures and kind of fluffing over them. Mm. Um, not in the sense of not taking accountability for Mm -hmm. them, but not taking more time to really see what the learning is and Mm. what the learning should be and being prepared for how to do it better, different the next time. You know, the way that I learned it actually was, um, I, I get the privilege to sit on a lot of committees that select winners for things Mm. or select people that are, um, going to be joining programs and there tends to be a question about failure and I hope I could say this word but like people suck at answering that question and so before I let myself get judgy on what what other people weren't doing Mm -hmm. I'm like you know how would you answer that question and guess what my answer sucked too (laughs) and it's because we have this I do at least, like, how do you make it rose colored? So how do you say like, Mm -hmm. I had this experience and here's how I learned from it. And I can do the same thing by saying, I had this experience and it was really hard and it shook me to the core. And this is why it shook me. And because of that, this is what I learned from it, right? So the, the, this is what I learned from it is still authentic, but be willing to get gritty with the raw stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I've found myself learning more because I'm letting myself go darker just a little bit mm-hmm. longer to really unpack it. Um, so I can enhance what I'm able to do with it the next time. Perfect answer. Today, we have been joined by Paris Parker, Chief HR Officer of PayCore. Thank you again for joining me. And it has been such a pleasure. And I so enjoyed your human-centric approach to HR. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already left a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I'd really appreciate it. If you have any feedback or questions about the show, drop them in the comments wherever you listen or email podcast at hrmorning.com. To find me, go to bertaaldrich.com or send me a message on LinkedIn. We'll be back next week with more Voices of HR.